Well, hi. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. A number of years ago, my friend Shari held a candle party. You know, one of those like social events where friends gather and eat snacks and drink wine, and, and there's a, a company representative, and, and they give a presentation about some sort of product, like, um, you know, plastic wear and clothing and makeup and um, kitchen gadgets and all of that sort of thing. And the idea is that people will buy some stuff, and then the host of the party will get some free stuff, and, and maybe some other people will book a party, and um, it's all really fun and social, and they're kind of fun. It's a home party, you know, lots of different products sold through these things. And I've been to many of them and they're lots of fun. My role in these parties tends to be that of the smart ass. And I usually get the evil eye several times from the company representatives. Um, I need to say right here and now that in this case of the candle party, I was making a point. Okay. But more on that later. After this party was over, Another friend commented that, like, wouldn't it be fun to get together like this and have snacks and drink wine, but without being pressured to buy stuff? So my friend Shari came up with this terrific idea. Like, you don't necessarily want on your calendar for all to see, get together with the girls to drink wine, right? But who's going to argue with you if you have book club? I'm sorry, I can't attend your event because I have book club that night. And that is how we began our No Book Book Club. We get together every couple of months or so with snacks and adult beverages. Um, we would plan beforehand which book we were not going to read and we would get together and not discuss that book. More recently, we've just gotten so damn good at this that we no longer even bother choosing a book to not discuss. We just all know. We just get together and don't discuss it. We're like true professionals. During COVID times, of course, we've had to make adjustments. So our meeting a couple of months ago was virtual, which was kind of cool because we didn't have to decide on a designated driver or make other arrangements for anyone to, else to come and drive our drunken asses home. The other night, we got together at Shari's, and boy, we celebrated the fact that she has this lovely courtyard with enough space for us all to apply physical distancing. So um, the snacks were already individual portions, like, you know, skewers of fruit, or the cookies were in muffin papers, so you could just grab the one you wanted. And we each had tongs so we could get our own meat and cheese and crackers, because Marilyn always brings a meat and cheese platter. And we sat two meters apart, perfectly comfortably, and and there was a little fire pit in the middle. It was just, it was lovely. And we were thinking about how things have changed and how we have to recognize that this is our new reality. Like, until there's a vaccine or a suitable treatment for COVID-19, we can really only get together in spaces large enough for all seven of us to sit two meters apart. And if the weather's crummy, we'll have to just meet virtually. So once again, I'm really thankful for the technology we get to enjoy today. But it was really, really awesome to see all my friends in, in person. 
And um, I just don't take that for granted. I, I'm very appreciative of these opportunities. So now you're about to hear uh, chapter 10 of Gatekeeper's Key, and you will see the exact opposite of social distancing. So I hope you enjoy reminiscing about the before times. This is chapter 10. Gatekeeper's Key by Krista Wallace. Chapter 10. The Spring Rites Festival. That evening's meal was a quiet one. Kean did not join them, and Valraker made only a brief appearance. There was little to no conversation, and no one mentioned Frederick's name. Kean's words to Frederick had shocked Kier. She had told Frederick he deserved to lose his knighthood, but she had said it for effect. At first, Kier thought that Kean had treated his captain harshly that his exile from the city ought to have a time limit, perhaps. But she began to understand why the Duke was unforgiving. The more she thought about it, the more Kier realized that Kian was right. Frederick had rejected all those things he had vowed to uphold, to protect, and to serve. How many other people had he hurt? How long would it have gone on if she herself had not caused it to be brought into the open? And that is where she faltered. There was one person Kier had completely forgotten in the heat of the moment. Acadia. Frederick was Acadia's brother. In the aftermath of her impetuousness, Kier recognized that she may have inadvertently caused the steward a great deal of pain. Kier avoided eye contact with Acadia for the rest of that day. The next morning, the scouts had still not returned. Valraker told them that the previous day's events merited a break from training. Besides, it was the eve of the new year, and a time for celebration, not work. So Kier approached Derry to take him up on his offer of a tour of the city. Tucked under one arm and concealed under her cloak next to her sword, Kier carried the chest containing the armlet, which used to belong to Simon Diddick. The city had undergone a transformation since Kier's parade to the castle the day before yesterday. From the top of the hill, the view below was awash with color. Flags, streamers, and flowers represented every hue and shade bursting from the soil at this time of year. Kier and Derry plunged into the sea of merriment that was the Spring Rites Festival. The blur of activity in the square could have consumed the market in Paderac twenty times over. There were the usual stalls and vendors, plus stages and booths had been erected for musicians, dancers, and magicians, all in flamboyantly decorated costumes who performed with an intensity that rivaled a battle. The singing, shouting, and steady stream of laughter surrounded them. In the fresh, clear morning, joy and happiness sparkled and were infectious. Kier's troubles of yesterday were obliterated, the mission ahead of them set aside. "'This is nothing,' Derry told her. We'll come back in the evening and you'll see what spring rites really means to these people. For now, she and Derry squeezed single file through the throng, Kier clutching the little box, careful not to let Derry get too far ahead of her. They chose not to linger in the market itself, since Derry didn't trust the quality of medicinal items sold by transient merchants and preferred to fill his physicking kit from reputable shops with which he was familiar. They left the square to rove up and down the streets, music following wherever they went as buskers with flutes, whistles, tambourines, drums, pipes, and fiddles danced on virtually every street corner. Accustomed to low-level buildings, Kier felt tiny next to Shale's gargantuan structures of four or five stories. With no room for outward expansion within the walls, the city had to expand in an upward direction. 
Additions to many of the buildings represented a myriad of styles, a jumble of timber, brick, wattle and daub, stone and plaster, all thrown together in a patchwork of beams, angles, and gargoyles. Residents inhabited apartment rooms and worked either below their homes or in separate quarters. Some houses had three stories above ground and steps leading downward from ground level to cellar spaces. They even boasted tiny gardens with space for a few vegetables or a chicken run. They went south toward the river and crested the arc in the bridge so Kier could glimpse the south side, the dark side, where the sun did not reach. Though the river itself was in full sunlight, the far bank was under the heavy shadow of the mighty wall. A few of the buildings stretched vainly sunward, but most did not bother and remained low and dark like slinking black cats stretched out along the roadside. Their fur was the deep green moss that perpetually clung like parasites to everything that could not walk away, in itself more animal than plant life. Kier and Derry did not cross to the other side of the bridge. Eventually they arrived outside an apothecary's shop. This is where I like to restock my kit. Derry reached for the door and lowered his voice. Alf is a little odd, nervous. Maybe it comes from working so closely with pretty strange herbs. But he's knowledgeable, and he has better quality selection than the other place. Would he know what this is? Kier indicated the chest. And is he trustworthy enough to take it? Derry nodded. Yes, he has some alchemical knowledge. Just let him know who you are, and he won't dare be anything but completely honest with you. The shop smelled of a pungent blend of herbs and spices and incense, behind which skulked mildew and fungus. Ulf, the apothecary, was helping another customer. While they awaited his attention, Derry moved along the floor-to-ceiling shelves, selecting items for his physicking kit. He told her a bit about each item he needed, which were parts of her favorite salve, which drew out poison, which reduced pain. Ulf and his son go and find the plants themselves, dry them, or extract whatever they need, Derry said. The other fellow often buys from traveling sellers, and who knows where they came from. Once Derry had paid for his collection, Kier placed the chest on the counter. The thin-necked man bobbed his head at it. I don't buy, I sell, he said shortly. Good thing I don't want to sell it to you, then, she replied. I acquired this chest, she lifted the lid, and I want to know what this device is. The old man frowned at the contents of the box and raised an eyebrow at it distrustfully. He squinted at her, closing the lid with caution. Where did you say you got this? I didn't. I won it. The apothecary glanced at Derry, then back at Kier, as if he doubted they could possibly be associated with each other. Is there a problem? Kier said innocently. I could take it elsewhere if you're unnerved by the task. The man hastily opened the chest again. Oh, not at all. It isn't that. It will require some time. A few days, perhaps. Identifying unfamiliar magical devices requires caution. She nodded. I'm about to embark on a journey for Lord Barthelon and Lord Valraker. She paused for the fellow to blanch slightly. You won't mind hanging on to this for a week or two until I get back then, will you? Excellent. Good day. She held the door open for Derry and got a glimpse of the unsettled apothecary gingerly picking up the chest and secreting it away in his back room. Khan stepped out from the side of the building and fell in step behind them again. Kier, Derry knew, was not one to conceal her emotions easily. He watched, therefore, for her reactions to the sights he showed her. 
From the tree-lined streets to his description of the city's postal service, the pleasure and awe shone so plainly on her face it fairly sparkled, and his own excitement fed on this. He shared with her stories of his own experiences in his visits to the city, things he hadn't shared with anyone else. The time he'd had a run-in with a goblin in a seedy tavern on the dark side of the river. The purchase of a new pouch which was shortly thereafter stolen, thankfully still empty. How the beauty of the singing during the winter solstice on his very first visit to Shale had made tears roll freely down his cheeks. Derry eyed her sidelong. She seemed to be studying him, yet it didn't cause him discomfort. He somehow knew his secrets were safe with Kier. She may not have shared the same passions, but neither would she laugh at him or mock him to his friends. With some surprise, it occurred to him that the only other person he felt this comfortable with was Valraker. Still, it was with some hesitancy that he took her to one of the places in the city that was most special to him. In the northwest quadrant of the city was the temple district, where they passed shrines erected to several of the deities. As Kier stood by that of Felviona, the goddess of pleasure, Derry watched an irrepressible grin open on her face. Kier, in turn, watched the tiny fountains on the shrine bubble like laughter, bringing the mirthful marble face of the statue to life. Derry laughed as Kier contorted her body in an effort to imitate the goddess's pose, her torso twisted and arms reaching over her head. "'Pity I don't have my sketchbook with me,' he said. Kier laughed, and it occurred to Derry that the goddess had influenced the mood. "'Where's the shrine to Garen?' Kier asked as they moved on. "'About a ten-minute walk from here. Would you like to see it?' She shrugged. "'God of war and battle. I guess he's supposed to be, you know, my patron god or something, and I just wondered.' "'Wondered what?' She chuckled as if dismissing the thought. "'That's nice,' she pointed at a granite statue of Kian himself, surrounded by a grove of maples. She had deftly changed the subject. "'Yes,' Derry felt a pang of disappointment. He'd opened up to her. Wasn't it customary for her to do the same?' Then they arrived at the place he'd wanted to show her. Derry stopped before a low building with a peaked slate roof. The double doors were of a light-colored wood and had been carved with elegant interlocked circles. His moment of disappointment made him tentative. "'This is my favorite temple,' he said. She smiled. With skepticism, with encouragement, the captain couldn't quite tell, but he pressed on. "'The circles on the doors denote the interconnectedness of all things in the world.' He watched her think through and identify each of the statues of all eight gods and goddesses that stood in between the pillars at the top of the steps. Derry indicated the statue of Aden to the left of the door. Emboldened by her interest, he went on. Since I first laid eyes on that particular depiction of her, I loved it, he said. See the look in her eye? There is lifelike caring and love in that eye. This is what I think she would really look like. Kier didn't say anything. Somewhat embarrassed, he needed to clarify. I guess there's a part of me that hopes they are real. I have a hard time trusting the gods. He felt a familiar tightness in his chest, and a memory of a dark night in Eckert flashed across his mind. What do you mean? He hesitated, choosing his words. The clerics tell us they are truly a part of our world and tell us how to worship them. But the gods don't seem to ever get involved. He paused. She would either understand or she wouldn't. I hope I don't offend you. 
She said nothing for a moment. Was she tactfully telling him she wasn't interested? What I was meaning to say before, she said finally, was that I wondered if, if Garen might pay more attention here in the city. I haven't decided about them either. I always felt like I had to manage on my own. I wonder if I'd feel something from him here, because I don't back in wrath. Then she quickly added, It's a nice temple, though. Yes, it's nice to come here and sit inside and feel peaceful. The doors opened and a crowd of worshippers poured out, threatening to knock the two observers off the steps. Except at New Year, Derry finished. They headed back toward the main road. Frederick offered me a tour of the city, Kier said. I turned him down because you had offered first. She looked up at him. I think the things he would have shown me would have been, by comparison, soulless. He smiled. We're going to come back tonight, right? She said. If you wish. I think I'd like to see the party in full swing. It was some time past noon and their stomachs began to summon their attention. Derry led her to a tavern he knew of. The Harvest Moon was a popular place. Right on a corner, it was visible from several directions, and a good many people had noticed it today. Derry and Kier squeezed inside past a mass of other patrons and crammed in against the wall to wait for seats. A girl passed with a large tray of beverages and a harassed expression— Another carried plates of food that left a wake of delicious aromas. An elven fiddler sat in the corner at the end of the bar next to the empty fireplace. The crowd called him by name and yelled out requests for songs. Play that one, that, that one with the sailor on the island. Has a bear in it, slurred one individual, who had started his evening revelry much earlier than was considered typical. But the musician knew what he meant and obliged immediately. Finally, two stools became vacant at the end of the bar farthest from the entertainer. Kier took the seat on the end, and Derry the next one. They ordered ale, and Derry raised his mug. Two, Derry stopped, uncertain. Friends? She smiled. To friends, she agreed. Derry sipped and felt pleasantly warm. He lowered his mug to see Kier continuing to drink. And drink. He couldn't help but grin, and when she finally plunked her tankard on the bar again, she saw his amused expression. "'You're not enjoying that at all, are you?' "'Nope, it's pretty hideous,' she took a few more large swallows. "'Wait until you taste the food.' "'Yeah, it all looks positively indigestible.' Her gaze followed a tray full of meals passing her on its way to a far table— Derry's mouth watered as the aroma flowed around his head. His light breakfast of a pear and some milk was but a distant memory. Shepherd's pie was the special of the day. Derry found that the lamb was chopped instead of minced, so the fact that it was cooked to perfection could not escape him. It melted on his tongue, and its juices mingled delicately with the potato. The flavor of neither was overpowered. A hint of rosemary? Suddenly, next to him, Kier flung herself onto the floor. She landed right in the path of a server whose tray dumped over, heaping Kier with half-empty bowls, dirty plates, and tankards with foam still clinging to the rims. The crash drew the attention of practically everyone in the place, apart from those caught up in the music, who demanded the song continue. Derry stared open-mouthed as, amid the server's babbled apologies and exclamations, Kier finally hauled herself to her feet. In her right hand was a dagger, its tip darkened with a spot of blood. Her left arm clutched a yelping heap of color. At first instinct, Derry thought it might be a wayward child, but when she pulled it out from under her cloak, it was a fully grown halfling. 
He was dressed in a canary-yellow tunic with a scarlet cravat and tall boots that matched his moss-green cape. The top of his curly head didn't even reach Kier's armpit, and his eyes were narrow with uncertainty, as if he were concocting a way to get out of his predicament. A shallow cut in his right cheek indicated where her dagger had evidently made contact. He abruptly let go of her money pouch and raised his hands, palms out. The money pouch, still attached to her belt, dropped back into place. "'I know what you were after. Don't try to pretend you were polishing my boots,' Kier sneered at him. Derry was more or less poised to help her, but he didn't think she would need it. "'Dear lady,' the halfling said grandly, bowing deeply, "'are you in town for the festival?' Kier gaped at him in bewilderment at his contradictory demeanour. "'No,' she corrected him carefully. "'I am in town because I am a guest of Lord Barthelin.' The halfling's eyes widened at the mention of the duke's name, but his dignified manner did not change. "'I do apologize for confusing you with someone else,' he said with a sweep of his cape. Kier grabbed it and tugged him back. The proprietor of the tavern arrived then and stood red-faced next to the bar. "'What's the trouble?' he barked. He turned sharply to the horrified server. "'Maya, what have you done?' "'It wasn't her fault,' Kier said sourly, not taking her eyes off the halfling. I got in her way while preventing my money from being stolen by this outrageous pickpocket of yours. The proprietor immediately flushed with ire and embarrassment and shouted incensed obscenities at the halfling. The little fellow quailed in spite of his strange gentlemanly behavior and tried to shrink away, decreasing his already minimal stature. Kier assured her host that she would take care of it and sheathed the dagger, drawing her sword instead. The proprietor murmured apologies for such a thing occurring in his establishment, while Kier instructed the halfling to aid the server in cleaning up the mess. She sat on her stool and continued her meal while occasionally prodding the halfling when it looked as if he were letting the girl do too much of the work. When the area was tidy again, Kier went about the crowded room, halfling in tow, and asked at each table if anyone was missing anything. She ordered him to return stolen items and apologize. Only when every one of his pockets was empty did Kier order him to leave the place. He did so at the fastest trot ever used by one of his kind. Derry had all but finished his pie when she returned to sit next to him. The proprietor bustled over. "'Please accept your meals on the house, with my thanks for what you have done.' Kier and Derry nodded their thanks and cleaned the last morsels from their plates. Soon after, they made room for more hungry patrons by vacating the inn. Derry held his tongue until they were several blocks down the street. You know, being in your company is never going to make me drowsy. Con watched the young man and woman cross the street. No point in wasting any more time today. He knew where to find her tonight. I am reluctant to agree with you. Kean stalked the length of his antechamber. It is her home village. She has a right to know it has been flattened. Yes, Valraker repeated with patient vehemence from his wing-backed chair, but think about it. What is the first thing she would do? Go back, of course, Kean said. And how wise would that be under the circumstances, Val said. But only if you are right in your suspicions. Val shrugged. Granted, but I don't believe in coincidences, and the timing is significant. I haven't received any kind of message, so I have to assume that for some reason Brendathlan has had her under his wing. And that he sent her away? Kian said. Just before the village was attacked. Valraker tapped the arms of the chair with his fingertips. It could even be that my sword, that she herself, is the message. 
And how will you find out? It's rather delicate. Quite. I shall have to bide my time and observe, Val replied. By then it will be too late for her to do anything about the trouble in wrath. Kian, Valraker's voice was low, even if I'm wrong, it's already too late for that. The high elf stared at him with cold fire in his gray eyes. He resumed his pacing. Why can't you just ask her? Valraker looked at his friend as if he had asked him to dance a polka. With a deep sigh, Kian rooted himself in the middle of the room, hands clasped behind him. Very well, old friend, we will say nothing. When Kier announced during supper that she and Derry would be going into the city for the evening's festivities, Fennel asked if he could join them. Derry was silent, but Kier said, Sure. To exclude the elf seemed wrong, despite him not being Derry's favorite companion. Shortly after the meal, the trio walked down the flagstone path. Kier noticed an extra body following them. It was Valraker. Can I come too? He sounded as eager as a six-year-old. Of course, Derry said. Kier said, I thought you and Kian would have all kinds of important stuff to discuss. Nah, we don't need to spend every waking moment together. Besides, I'm on holidays now that you all are almost ready to go. It crossed her mind that she, Derry, and Fennel weren't simply people who worked for him. They were also his friends. The glance over his shoulder at the north gate of the city was proof that his mind was not completely off his worries, but he made a good show of it. The sun was setting in brilliant reds, oranges, pinks, and purples as the little party emerged from the castle gate. They paused on the hill and gazed at the breathtaking spectacle that stretched halfway toward them across the sky. Wordlessly they watched as the colors deepened to violet and sapphire and retreated, drawing in on themselves, sinking into the horizon. Behind them the expanse of indigo was dotted with the first stars, and finally it faded to blackness in the east. Her feet rooted to the path Kier could not have turned away if she wanted to. The faint sounds of revelry below did not interrupt the scene, but enhanced it, providing the music to welcome the stars. Every one of them breathed a sigh as the last of the magical colors dived down below the edge of the world. As if in response, a light breeze whisked around the edges of their cloaks and sailed upward to greet the coming night. Fennel was, not surprisingly, the first to find words. This time, though, he spoke with quiet reverence. Wow, that was stunning. Where I come from, you're so secluded in the trees that you don't see that kind of thing. Out and about the guarded realm, though, you get to experience the sky spirits. Now that is truly something to see. They continued down the hill, each one depositing those swift moments in a memory to be treasured again later. Khan rubbed his chest as he watched the girl and her friends descend the hill. She walked by him, five sword lengths away from where he sat on the step at the edge of the square. Tonight, in all the crowd, there would be an opportunity to separate her from the rest. He waited a decent interval, then fell in a few paces behind them. There was such a hubbub in the square, Kier doubted anyone had even noticed the sunset. Kier had thought it busy earlier in the day. Now there was not just a crowd of people, but hordes of revelers pushing to get a better view of the performers. She was glad she'd left all but a few coins in her room, just in case another halfling should come along and be lower profile than the last. More than once she was heavily jostled and saved from falling only by the closeness of the person she was knocked into. People shoved to make way for the parade of jugglers on stilts with lanterns and drums. 
Torches on tall posts sputtered overhead, illuminating what the eclipsed new moon did not. The huge lanterns carried by masked creatures made the wild-looking fanged and tusked face coverings exaggerated and grotesque. The angular shadows dripped off them in the way that spit and foam would on the real thing. Over to Kier's right, a group of drummers carried on a musical conversation, large, deeply resonating drums responding to the comments of shallow, higher-pitched ones. Off to the left, a vigorous trio of singers step-danced and belted out rousing harmonies accompanied by fiddle and flute. Up ahead, on one of the stages, a brave rogue dressed in nothing but a tattered loincloth danced lewdly and gulped flaming torches the way Kier had often attacked a hunk of meat on a skewer. With the new swan moon came the Rydras New Year. Spring rites was the official end of winter, the beginning of spring, embodied by the mating of animals, the start of new growth, new life. Further to that, conception of a child during spring rites was a blessing, meaning an easy pregnancy and a long and healthy life for the child. Kier couldn't help but notice that much of the entertainment was inspiring to that goal. It was a celebration of every kind of love. Some couples were so deeply inspired they couldn't wait until they got home. One couple found a sorry excuse for privacy up against an ale vendor's booth, and another was tucked in behind one of the stages. Business boomed for ale and spirit vendors. They were spaced at regular intervals throughout the square, so as the last drop of one cup was drained, there was always more to hand. Even at this early hour, a few men and women were completely soused, but continued to drink and meander through the crowds, barely able to stay on their feet. Derry steered Kier around a pool of muck where someone had had to purge himself before heading back for more. The group was suddenly overtaken by a parade of dancers, pipers, and drummers. Four men held up long poles on which lanterns were suspended from hooks, forming a rectangular moving stage area around the performers. The women were clad in strips of brown and green cloth that barely concealed their most interesting areas. Their hair was dyed strange colors with ribbons woven through it. It was as wild as their dancing, hopping, jigging, undulating. The men had painted their torsos and faces, and some wore masks to look like fantastical bears, deer, birds, and fish. They had torn old trousers to knee-length shreds and danced barefoot, kicking their knees up to nearly shoulder height. Kier clapped in time with the music, and her face ached from grinning. Khan wove through the throng, his left hand making itself comfortable on the hilt of his dagger. There she was, just ahead, oblivious. A few more steps and he could... One of the dancers grabbed Kier by the arm and pulled her into the dance, holding her body close to his and whirling around and around until she was dizzy and laughing so uncontrollably she could hardly keep on her feet. The music reeled and the dancers chased it. Her very male partner smelled of body paint, spirits, and sweat. She breathed deeply, intoxicated by it. She was seized with an understanding of why spring rites could be so appealing. Fennel and Valraker had been similarly accosted, the former showing up his partner with his nimble feet. Only Derry was spared, but as she went around, Kier caught a glimpse of his mirthful smile as he clapped along. Amid a cheering crowd, she tipped her head back and laughed, hooting and hollering along with her partner until it finally ended, and she was released, staggering, over to Derry. <laughs> Whoa there, he laughed as he steadied her until her head stopped spinning. The man who had held her so seductively beckoned to her with an inviting leer, but she waved her rejection, and he moved on. The two elves returned, Fennel looking cheerful and in control as if nothing had happened, whereas Valraker said, I think I'm going to puke. 
but he didn't. They stumbled, laughing, along to the next performance. Con cursed as his mark was surrounded by her friends again. Patience, he told himself. The right time will present itself. Ah, up ahead, the group had stopped again. The friends neared another stage, where a small figure was juggling a club, a clay bowl, and an egg while singing When My Love Comes Home Again in a hearty voice. Kier grabbed Derry's arm in disbelief and pointed at the halfling from the harvest moon. The cut was still visible on his cheek. Derry said, He appears to be a much better juggler than he is a pickpocket. When the song was over, the little fellow swung the club around and clutched it under one arm, then caught first the bowl, then the egg, which he cracked into it. "'Anyone hungry?' he offered, eyes spanning his cheering audience until they rested on Kier. She began to clap in spite of herself. He bowed and reached into his vest. Con's grin overtook the half of his face that functioned. All eyes were on the halfling. No one would notice the sudden departure of one of the crowd. The knife came up, still concealed, ready to fit neatly into the small of her back. Quick now. The halfling pulled out a bouquet of dried flowers and tossed it to Kier with a grandiose gesture. She caught it, completely befuddled. How was she supposed to react when given flowers by a strange creature who had tried to steal money from her not eight hours prior? And before she knew it, he was there in front of her, to the amazement of all her companions. Down on one knee, he barely reached her hip, but he took her hand and kissed it. Khan melted back into the crowd, breathing heavily. He nearly hadn't checked himself in time. Had he been one instant sooner, the eyes of all would have followed the halfling to rest on him as well as the girl. "'Dear lady, I am your humble servant!' the preposterous fellow orated. Skimnoddle is my name, and I would like, nay, I must tell you how utterly enchanting you are. You are indeed the most beautiful, bewitching creature I have ever laid eyes on, and if I may beg but one kiss from those sweet lips, I would be the most gratified, nay, honoured halfling in all of Rydris. Kier was too befuddled to even laugh. Her jaw gaped unattractively. Derry looked stern, Fennel confused, and Valraker pleased as punch with the little man. Skimnoddle didn't stop there. You are speechless. Perhaps you think I have forgotten the events of this afternoon. Nay, I assure you I have thought of nothing else these seven hours and twenty-six minutes. When you released me and I first beheld your exquisite countenance, I was dazzled by your resplendence. You are, in short, and I know not how to put it more accurately, pulchritudinous. It could not be borne. Kier finally gasped out a laugh and shook her head in bafflement. I don't even know what that means. What is the matter with you? Get up, for God's sake. He did so with a hand on his heart. If it would please the lady, I will do it. Okay, you know what? Kier slapped a hand on her forehead. I don't know what you've been drinking, but you are by far the most outlandish person I have ever met. I want you to go away from me now and stay away. She pushed the flowers into his hands and turned on her heel, leaving him crying, refused, denied, repudiated, to her back as she pushed her way through the crowd. Soon she became aware of Derry's tall figure alongside her. When they reached the outskirts of the square where the crowd was thinner, she paused for him to catch up. <laughs> I've had enough, she said. I'm going back to the castle. You don't have to cut your evening short on my account, though. 
He assured her that he, too, had seen plenty of revelry for one night, and they started up the hill. "'I think I need a nice, quiet glass of wine. Would you care to join me?' Derry said nothing, responding with a nod, but his silence held an undercurrent of subdued amusement. Finally, when they reached the gate, Derry murmured, "'Like I said, never a dull moment.' She managed not to slug him. Con leaned breathlessly against a booth and rubbed the numbness surrounding the scar on his face. He decided to call it a night. He was too desperate. Wait for it. She will come to you. Several hours and as many cups of wine each later, Kierre let the last drops of nectar linger on her tongue. She closed her eyes and sighed deeply. <sighs> Do you suppose it's time for bed? She opened her eyes to find Derry's blue eyes watching her, his lips parted. The clarity in his expression startled her, and the smile that played on her mouth melted away. Wordlessly they rose, and she broke the eye contact. They reached the door at the same time, both extended their hands. A slight hesitation as they looked at each other, a small smile passed between them, and Derry let his hand drop. She passed through the door, and just as she turned to approach the entrance to the stairs, Kier was startled by a voice from above. Kier! It was Acadia. Kier hesitated. The steward's cloaked figure floated down the stairs, saying nothing more until she reached them. Kier, confused by the abrupt switch from one mood to another, was particularly entranced by the candelabra on the table. It held five candles. Good evening, Acadia. You're up late. Derry said with a bow. Yes, I couldn't sleep. Kier, I'm in need of a walk. Please, would you walk with me? Kier nodded. Now's as good a time as any to talk this out, she thought. She said good night to Derry over her shoulder. With a short bow, he turned away. The two young women went out the door and stepped slowly along the path. The night was still, the noise from the festival checked by the high walls. Kier was glad she had her cloak. They walked in fresh, cool silence for a while. "'You are very fortunate to have Derry in your party,' Acadia said finally. "'Yes, he's a good man.' She was curious about the depth of Acadia's feeling for her friend, but this wasn't what the fair-haired woman wanted to speak to her about. "'Kier, I—' She took a breath. "'I feel awkward even approaching you about this, but you probably know why I want to speak with you.' I suppose I do, Kier kept her eyes ahead on the path. I wanted you to know that I do not harbor any resentment toward you. Kier stopped by the bench under the cherry tree. You don't? I wouldn't blame you if you did. It, it's my fault Frederick's gone. The scent of blossoms wafted down. That's where I think you're wrong, her companion said in the tone of one who is used to speaking and being listened to. It's Frederick's fault he's gone, Kier. He has been guilty of more than one indiscretion. You aren't the only victim of his insensitivity. Her quelled vehemence told Kier that Acadia spoke on full authority. It took many years of ill behavior to arrive at such a result, Stewart continued. If his only mistake was to talk of his relations with you, then Kian would never have reacted as strongly as he did. But I was the one who caused it all to come out. I meant only to let him know he couldn't get away with treating me like that. I had no idea it would go so far. Acadia spoke firmly. I've thought of nothing else since Usher told me all about it yesterday. It may take some time, but I believe that most people will not censure you for your involvement in this. But thank you 
But he's your brother, Kier exclaimed. You may never see him again. How can you not hate me? Do you want me to? Acadia asked thoughtfully. No, of course not. Kier was faintly pleased that her companion would speak so pointedly. Just the opposite, in fact. I suppose I was worried that you would, she admitted to the leaves above her head. I don't have many friends. Neither have I, Acadia sat with a heavy sigh. Have you any brothers or sisters, Kier? Kier shook her head, then said no, because she realized Acadia wouldn't see her gesture in the darkness. Frederick left home before I was born. He was twelve. I lived at home with our parents until I was fifteen, so I was an only child as well. When mother and father died, I came here to the castle. Frederick was here. He was my only family. I think he felt that he ought to play the part of father for me, but I didn't know him. He's more like a distant uncle than what I imagine a brother ought to be, and we haven't always been on the best of terms. Sometimes I felt I was in his way, an inconvenience. He would criticize me just as easily as he did his men. He even tried to make me believe I was given the position of steward because he's captain. But that's ridiculous, Kier said automatically. You're perfect for the job. <laughs> Thank you. It was only recently that I found myself able to accept that. The darkness seemed to reveal the bitterness she would otherwise have concealed. Do you know what I wanted to be? I've never told anyone else. I was once an apprentice healer. I was perfect for that job, too, even more so. Kier sat down at the other end of the bench. What happened? My parents were taken with fever the winter after Frederick was made captain. I tried everything. Her voice tightened. I was with them day and night. I used compresses. I gave them broths and ointments. I nearly exhausted myself with energy transference. But I couldn't save them. <laughs> A sob escaped and was hastily dampened. For the first two months I was here, Frederick didn't say a word to me. For years I believed it was my fault our parents were dead. Kier tried to think of something to say, but consoling was not her strength. Acadia took a breath and puffed it out. <sighs> but you're a warrior, she adopted a cheerful tone, and her words tumbled out like a brook. You don't want to hear all about that. I only wanted you to be aware that you needn't be concerned that you've hurt me by your part in Frederick's dismissal. I'm glad of that, but I don't. In fact, Acadia rose. Let me be the first. She extended her hand. Thank you. Kier shook her hand awkwardly and did not know what to say. Your welcome seemed inappropriate somehow. The scouts arrived the next day. After a short meeting with them, Valraker pronounced the all clear. There followed a day of hurried preparation, leaving no room for getting to know anyone from the Duke's other teams. Kier caught sight of a female elf, very pale and austere, with the typical disdain of a snow elf, just before the latter withdrew to keep entirely to herself. Kier had preparations for the last minute, so she picked up her leather cuirass from the armory where its small gashes had been repaired. She asked Fennel to go into the city to fetch the few things she needed. She had had enough of the sights and experiences of Shale and was reluctant to risk running into Skimnoddle the halfling again, ever. The elf was more than willing to oblige. Fennel left the general store loving the world. He grinned at passers-by and said hello to anyone who would make eye contact with him. He would ride this wave of pride and self-satisfaction for days, and if it continued to carry him this high off the ground all the way to Nenya, it would be an easy journey indeed. 
His instinct upon first glance at the other customer had been to mistrust him. The odd paralysis on one side of the man's face made him look gargoylish. But when Fennel noticed the long scar, he reproached himself for judging a man's character based on facial damage. The poor fellow had been wounded. Did he deserve to be shunned for the rest of his days? And once the elf had got past his initial reaction, he had found the man to be quite chatty. What an amiable chap! Fennel grinned again, and a woman peered over her shoulder at him as she passed. He was certain he had not even looked startled when the man smiled with only half of his face as they bade each other good day. Kean gave them each a vial of healing potion as a farewell gift. Not to heal injuries, but to prevent them. It always seems that the only time I am injured is when I do not have any healing potion on hand, he joked. If it weren't impractical, I would fill your saddlebags with them. Just after dawn, they made their farewells to Governor Linden and Acadia in the foyer. The young woman was pleasant and genuinely sorry to see them go. Kier observed a piece about her that she had not seen before, even heard her laugh. She truly seems to be fine, Kier thought. She shook the fair woman's hand and sincerely wished her well. Kian and Valraker accompanied them to the castle gates and watched as the party took the secluded road around to the right of the wall. The distant sounds of the spring rites revelry underscored the departure, and Kier turned to give a final wave to the two dukes. Now the waiting began for them. The horses went around the northeast tower, and the castle entrance was out of sight. The northern high gate was much less traveled than the others, a more suitable exit for a group setting out on a mission for the dukes of Eckert and Shea. The guards stood at attention as the group of five passed through the gate. This time Kier did not turn, but looked at the road ahead. Her first mission had now begun. That's it for Chapter 10. Next week, our heroes embark on their journey, and a few people have some regrets. I'm coming at you from my little studio here where I'm literally rubbing shoulders with my mother of the groom dress, which I get to wear this weekend. Ah! Yes, it's very exciting. My dress is um, it's burgundy, and it's raw silk. And it's homemade, but not by me. I bought it at a thrift store for $15. Isn't that like the best mother of the groom dress ever? It's awesome. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm going to be going to be kind of matchy with both the groom, my son, and my husband in their Crawford tartan kilts. It's going to be wicked cool. So thanks for listening this week. Thanks to my family. Matt, David, Heather, and Maggie. This time next week, David and Heather will be officially married. Thank you, as always, to David and Sharon. And a shout out to the original six. Well, hey, so now about that point I was making at Shari's Candle Party. See, they have these little battery-operated, um, well, the sales rep was calling them candles, and, you know, they flicker like candles and they have like a wick shaped thing um and the sales rep was touting them as being great for putting on the floor in the hallway at night like a nightlight and I said um but it's not a candle and she said yes it is and I said no actually it it doesn't have a wick and a flame it's not a candle it's a light a battery operated light you know like a flashlight is a light and she was like, yes, it's a candle. See, it looks like a candle. And I said, no, it's a candle-shaped light. 
And in fact, if it were a candle, there's no way I would leave it on the floor in the hallway because that would be like leaving open flame on the floor for, for someone to trip on and burn the house down. So, like I said, smartass. I, anyway, this company rep was really not happy with me. My point of view is like, why are you arguing with me? Just say, yeah, you're right. And be done with it. You know, just really just laugh because that's my MO when it comes right down to it. It's only because she kept arguing with me that I had to keep making my point. You know, I'm not stopping her from selling any. I, I totally see why they're cool. Just don't keep calling them candles. Anyway, don't invite me to your party if you expect your guests to be on their best behavior because my best behavior isn't that great, apparently. <laughs> Chapter 11 is coming soon to a Wednesday near you. Meanwhile, in the words of the wonderful Dr. Bonnie Henry, be kind, be calm, and be safe. Now, go be fantastic. <laughs>